Diversion Podcasts. A Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Serena. You know, for me, I tell this to some of my friends that don't know Serena, but she has such a good heart. When my son got sick, when probably like six years ago, and had to have this endoscopy, the surgery, you know, she called him, you know, before the surgery, she gave him pep talks. You know, she didn't need to do that. You know, it wasn't necessary. She called, I think his surgery was like at 7 a.m. She called him at 6 a.m. And was like, don't you worry, you're gonna be better than ever. And you know, whatever you have to do, it's it's gonna be fine. And it meant the world to me. Like it, it just showed me like, you know, she's a real good person. I think so often in professional sports, people lose sight of that, especially more towards young women because the parents seem to be more involved with the with the women's sports athletes than the men. And I always say that few things you got to keep in check because you essentially want a healthy child because you can be the greatest in your sport and if you are not a happy individual and, and truly I mean when you look at somebody like Serena who's been able to have a life off the court too it's just beautiful to see Welcome to The GOAT Season 2, Serena. I'm Chanda Rubin, former world number six, Grand Slam singles semifinalist and doubles champion, alongside my co-host, Zena Garrison, a former Wimbledon finalist, world number four, and Olympic gold medalist. In this podcast, part of Diversion's GOAT series, Zena and I and our guests celebrate the career and life of Serena Williams. We'll trace her path as she evolved from an outlier in the tennis establishment into the all-time Grand Slam singles champion and, ultimately, a cultural icon. In this 12th and final episode, The Making of the Goat, we're going to take you behind the scenes of this podcast. Zena and I will be joined by our writer, veteran tennis journalist Pete Bodo. We're going to discuss how we put this podcast together and also share some of our own thoughts about Serena and her world. And we'll give you a special treat that we've mostly been holding back in previous episodes. During the making of The Goat, Serena, we had one question we asked of everyone, almost always at the very end of our conversations. Tell us your favorite Serena moment. As you will hear, those memories happened in hospital rooms, on or around tennis courts, even in formal press interviews. Here's a little background on our mission in this podcast before we get rolling. Our game plan called for us to reach out to a wide, varied list of guests who either knew Serena well or are great in their own right. We wanted a broad representation, which is why we featured, among others, Good Morning America host Robin Roberts and the actor and rapper Common, as well as Hall of Fame players, including Billie Jean King, Monica Seles, and Andy Roddick. We included a family member, Serena's sister, Isha Price, as well as Serena's past and present coaches. In all, we did about 20 interviews with over 12 hours worth of material. 
So let me stop right here and thank each and every one of our guests for their time and contribution. We toyed with the idea of ordering the episodes chronologically, but ultimately felt that we needed more of a helicopter view if we were going to celebrate the career and life of the GOAT fittingly. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that although we pay tribute in many places to her game, we don't talk at length about the X's and O's or even specific matches. We focused on bringing Serena in all her dimensions to life for our listeners. So then, let's get right into it. So Zena, you've spent most of your career being interviewed, sort of being on the other side of the microphone, answering questions rather than asking them. So how did you like having the tables turned and being the interviewer here? Was it fun? Was it a little bit challenging? You know, Chanda, it's really interesting because I've always liked interviewing others. Um, You know, I'm one of those players that are are people, I'm not a gossipy person, but I like to know interesting stories and I like to know the background. And um, as you know, I'm not a big talker, but when you put me in front of a mic, I will ask questions and I love it. So this is, you know, it's been more than I can ever imagine um, doing this podcast and just having the opportunity to work with you to the great Peter Bodo. I mean, this has been like amazing for me. Yeah. It's been interesting for me as well. Just being on the, now for me being on the other side of the microphone and the television, so to speak as a television analyst watching and um, you know, commentating matches this felt more like storytelling, you know, this podcast. And, you know, it was interesting to kind of think about things from a different perspective. Usually as an analyst, I'm doing a lot of things off the cuff. You know, it's just what's going on. I'm talking about what I'm seeing, what's happening, trying, you know, to convey information, give the viewers or the listeners a little better idea of what's going on. But, but this was like almost like teaching in a different way. And my mom was a teacher for a lot of years. And at times <laughs> I kind of felt like that. Uh, and so it was a lot of fun. It was challenging, but I feel like it also stretched me in some different ways. And in particular, working with Pete, who has been amazing, Pete Bodo, uh, as I mean, he's usually the interviewer. And, you know, we want I want to bring him in now. Pete, I'm curious, with the writing that you did for this podcast, was it very different from what you have done over the course of your career? Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, I want to say that it's been such a great pleasure working with, with both of you. I remember you're, you're, you're two of the players I visited when you guys were really starting your careers, essentially, and, you know, met your parents, met your coaches, you know, spent time in both in Houston and also in Lafayette. It was and just wonderful, wonderful memory. So it's just really been a pleasure. The comfort zone here has been huge, which in many ways was really good because there are some real challenges to podcasting that I didn't necessarily anticipate. You know, one of them was the podcasts I had listened to were single generally single person interviews. So there'd be, you know, the podcaster interviewing a subject and that would pretty much be it. Well, in this one, because we we covered so many bases, uh, it was very different because we had to, it was like a big jigsaw puzzle. You couldn't ask the same Mm -hmm. question. You couldn't do a single person because then you, you know, why would you have 13 guests do it would be too much repetition. So carving it up was really kind of a great challenge. In a way, our intent here was to create a kind of super serial podcast. And in order to accomplish that, we had a lot of cutting and pacing to do, and we had to tailor our questions for our guests. 
there's a place for the breezy, let's just sit down and have a 30-minute chat about Serena. Well, this wasn't it. We wanted a deeper dive. You're what I call, a, you know, a true journalist. And, you know, we don't really have those in sports anymore. But in the way you put, you know, just we would get the questions that you would send. And I just was enamored by how in depth, like, how did all of that work for you? Well, you know, I mean, after doing this for so long, you just have a, a pretty good idea of what, what really matters. We would look at our lineup of episodes and say, well, you know, this episode is going to be about this subject. And, and then it would be, you know, which, which would be the appropriate questions for this particular person? I mean, I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, element of it because each of each of them had different perspectives and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was, um, you know, kind of kind of a challenge sometimes to get to get them targeted in these conversations. You, I mean, you two did a marvelous job in really getting people relaxed. I mean, there were people who, you know, some of those episodes are guests did not want to get off. Trust me, you know, after listening to, you know, when when a lot of people what I've been interviewing were like, okay, can we stop now? And yes. so this well, you know the difference, right? You know, you know when people are looking at their watch and going, okay, I told you 20 minutes and it is now 19 minutes and 30 seconds and that you know when they are really pushing you in terms of the time. And then for the most part though, our guests they just seemed relaxed and you could tell they would have talked, you know, another 10, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, there was a lot of Xeno love there, right? Oh, okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, well, I have a question for both of you guys. You know, you know, I know for me, I felt it was interesting. I felt like I knew a lot about Serena, but the perception of Serena uh, for me changed even more you know, greater, or I was even more proud of her. How did the, how did you guys perceive, how did you perceive her then? And how do you perceive her now on the way that you feel after this um, podcast? You know, I think for me, Zena, kind of playing during, during the time that Serena played, I mean, our careers overlapped a bit, we played each other, you know, it's a different viewpoint that I had, but to kind of see it almost from a bird's eye view a little bit, like stepping back, and looking at it as a whole and just studying how she evolved and how her game evolved, you realize just, I mean, she, she was human as well. All the things she had to go through the, during those periods, you know, it's easy sometimes to look at the body of work and say, Oh, it was just meant to be that they were just that great, but there were still each year things she had to go through, things she had to put in place, things she had to overcome. And, you know, for me, that was the interesting part of just looking at all of that as a whole and having a new appreciation for what she had accomplished. Yeah. You know, I think one of, one of the things I noticed throughout these episodes was the degree to which, how much time Zena has spent with Serena, how much she knew about the backgrounds and behind the scenes. And I think people really picked up on that too. You know, what it, what it, what it reminds me of a little bit is one of my biggest takeaways from this experience has been Serena's loyalty. I mean, mm -hmm. she has been remarkably loyal to the people who she's worked with, been with, you know, uh, and had, you know, you know, even people she dated, she's still good friends with Common. Yeah. There's some there were people. So I mean, yeah, I that's think, a good point. <laughs> you know, you look at Mackie Shulstone, you know, who is another one who, you know, the, the kind of loyalty that she breeds really speaks very highly of her. I think we had decided early on in the process that nothing appropriate would be off limits knowing that it could put some of our guests, like analyst Mary Carrillo or Serena's agent Jill Smoller, on the spot. That was one place where the background Zena and I share, and our history with Serena, 
was a real plus. Now, you know, there were a few of the controversies we touched on, you know, during the course of of these episodes. And, you know, we had to kind of delve into not only all the positives, but some of the the negatives or some of the things that, that were maybe challenges over the course of her career. And I thought that made, you know, this, this, uh, podcast, I think, more interesting and more authentic. But I'm curious for both of you, how did you think our guest handled, you know, talking about some of these controversies and even the questions we asked alluding to it? You know, it was interesting to me because no one was afraid to like go into it or say what they felt, you know, in that time. And I, I go back to a conversation with Mary. Mary was very direct, you know, when they had that incident with Kleister's at the U.S. Open. She was not happy about part of it, but then the other part of it she understood. And, you know, but then she came back and, you know, basically said, but, you know, the way I thought Serena would handle it one way, but then she came back and handled it. So I can respect her for that, you know? So it was, it was kind of interesting. And, and everyone that we talked to seemed to not agree with everything, but they were like, you know, she stood her ground. <laughs> and I, I think that's w- the way that we see Serena. And one thing I do know about her, if she has done something wrong and she's holding ground, she'll figure it out and she'll come back and say, Maybe I shouldn't have done that at that particular time, or I could have handled it a different way. And that's all you can do in this day and age as well. What struck me about a lot of the stuff that we dealt with, the controversies was, you know, kind of how nuanced the discussion was. Mm-hmm. And that's not something you often got with Serena, because in the heat of the moment when these things happened, it was either like uh, Osaka got a raw deal or, you know, Serena got a raw deal. And people were very dogmatic and had their heels dug in. But, you know, people like when we had Robin Roberts on, for instance, and her explanation of how it was very different being there as opposed to watching it on television. Nobody gave Serena a free pass on anything, but people did interpret and get into the nuances. This episode of The Goat, Serena, continues after this. As we know, Serena recently turned 40. It's hard to believe, isn't it? We don't have to use generational tags like boomer or millennial, but it's pretty clear that Serena is a different generation from today's young fans and players. We asked ourselves, if that would shape the way she is perceived. That discussion inevitably leads to questions about the impact of social media, something Zena has dealt with quite a bit, including when she was coaching Taylor Townsend. It's funny, Chanda, because I I had a couple of um, young players that I said, make sure you follow the podcast because this is a great opportunity to learn about, you know, a goat, but all the ups and downs that she went through. And um, and that she was able to come. But the biggest part is how resilient she was doing all of this. This is in any sport because it's literally about Serena to me is it's about life and like how she's had ups and downs, you know, but she's been the top player. And it didn't matter. And she went through this and she had death in her family that the whole world see. And it's still she still was able to come back. So if I have any young person, it, I would have them sit down and listen to this podcast. Yeah. Well, that's of a piece with what you've been saying for quite a while, Zena. I mean, you know, a couple times I noticed during the episodes, you would bring up something Serena told you about social media. 
you know, this has opened up a very, very big can of worms, I think. It's interesting because, you know, I, I said what I said about like what Serena is like the next champion, you know, back then when she was telling me about, you know, how to handle Taylor, the next champion will have to learn how to deal with social media. And she was absolutely 100 percent right. But I've also recently saw Roger Federer come out and also say, you know, back in his day, he he didn't really have to deal with that, but he had to learn to manage it. And, you know, we talk about uh, Emma Rondekondo and literally the day after she won the U.S. Open, what I noticed was immediately social media was like everything was like on it and she's hitting back right away. First of all, they're going to have to get that under control because she's like she's out there. She's young. There's no way that she can really grasp what's happening to her right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, Zena, one of the challenges is that, you know, nothing is really as private. You know, you can't really go through, you know, these, you know, growth processes and, you know, trying to sort of trial and error and learning the way. I mean, it, it's going to take some real discipline. And, and like you said, they have to manage this now. It is a part of just as much a part of what they are responsible for as their, their sponsors and their, you know, off-court commitments. One thing I think we see in these great champions, Serena, Roger Federer, it's their ability to adapt and to also understand what they need to do to maximize what their abilities are, you know, in a given situation. But it's something, as you said, Zena, I think has to be managed. And you've got to almost have a real discipline about how you handle your social media now. Well, you have to, you, it's, it's just going to have to be part of your practice as well. So you have your training schedule. You've got, you know, two hours of practice in the morning. You've got an hour and a half of fitness. You got another hour and a half of practice. So we're going to fit social media, <laughs> an hour and a half to social media. <laughs> You've got to fit it in there. And look, the first thing I do, think about what you say before you press that sin button. Okay. <laughs> Any talk about young players and generations inevitably leads to the unique role parents, especially when they are also a child's coach, play in tennis. More than in most high-profile pro sports, parents are involved from the get-go because tennis players start so young and it's a sport for individuals, not teams. Richard and Orsine played leading roles in Serena's life and career, not only as parents, but also as her guardians and coaches. She had Richard Williams as her dad and Orsine Price Williams as her mom, two very strong figures that made them who they are today. But, you know, they taught them loyalty from the beginning, and I think that's kind of just stood. I mean, but even when, you know, this was with Sasha and... Then on to Patrick, it's not a lot of movement under there. Or even, you know, she'd call me every once in a while if she needs to know something. Not a lot of movement. It really lies back to you. Don't you think, Chanda? It's really on you after a while. It is. And I think it also just kind of, it goes to the real solid base. You know, their parents were early on, you know, they were their coaches. But their parents also brought other coaches in you know, to help and, and as needed. And they, they had a, a real high level of intelligence in terms of what knowing what they could provide and what was important for them to provide as parents and as, you know, parent coaches, but also what was important for them to get from outside sources. And I think that in some cases 
we we have it's missing you know for a number of players and and for maybe some of the young players coming out you know you have you know parents in some cases or you have you know coaches that have maybe been there for from early on they don't want to give up the control they don't want to you know give up and that was a belief that was built through her family that there was never you know there was never that need or that desire you know to kind of blame it on a coach or feel like the coach was going to be the full answer she knew it was going to be about her and how she played ultimately you remember that great story Mackie told of course about uh, after after a loss that he thought he was going to get fired mm. uh, grant, granted it's only a fitness trainer but still you know that has an that has an impact and uh yeah. he owned it and it's one of the great things about serena i think was in a very simple way whatever she did she owned good or bad you know it's a the, the, this is me, this is what I get. I think one of the greatest things that the uh, that the parents did was they had a real talent for knowing when to step back. Mm-hmm. You know, right off the bat, you know, even though going to Florida wasn't entirely stepping back, Richard at some level realized that he could really use the help of someone like a Rick Macy, and he went. And then later on, when he was a little bit more out of the picture, then Orsine was never really... Or, or she was never out front, you know, in terms of the media or anything as a coach. I mean, you know, you have to really dig pretty deep to realize what what, what an impact she had on her. Yeah, I think we see that, you know, as we kind of talk to, you know, different people that were close to Serena, that were part of her team, and in particular, her sister, Isha. You know, I really enjoyed the conversations we had with Isha because it gave us a little more insight and, you know, gave us a, even more of an of an idea of why, Richard, but even Orsine were so were such strong figures and helped to produce such a strong person in, in Serena uh, specifically. So I enjoyed I enjoyed those conversations and and just getting um, you know a little more of the human kind of family family side of things. If they felt they needed to get something or they needed to you know do something that was beneficial to both girls, they were willing to do it. Like they were the types of parents that it wasn't about them. And we see it even with Orsine now, like you barely even know she's there <laughs> watching matches uh, when she does come. Sometimes I'm wondering if she's awake up there watching. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the things that also I think has happened is, and this has been a very good thing, is that we're now getting parents being coached. If like you look at a Coco Goff and the fact that she got together with uh, teammate from Roger Federer's outfit, and you know, they're, they're really helping her parents because as as smart as the parents are, even and they were terrific athletes, etc. Tennis, as you guys well know, is like a very specific kind of environment. They're very mm-hmm. kind of unique challenges in tennis that don't really exist necessarily in all the other sports. So I think having getting this input from you know people like Roger Federer's team and and you know being in discussion with them really makes the parents really elevates the parents as coaches, I think, makes them much more acceptable as coaches than back in the day. I mean, you guys remember there were, you know, there were players out there. We won't even get into any names, but there are players out there. The father's been there for like, you know, 22 years and there's been nobody else coaching the player. Mm-hmm. And then you're in your locker room crying because, you know, dad got mad and smacked the girl. You know, I mean, it's kind of crazy things. And I think it's really gone down. It's funny, Pete, just reminding me of something. I think the only thing Richard was wrong about is that the girls were going to retire at a very young age, but everything else he told us, and he was correct. You know, both of them were going to be number one. They were going to not spend all their time. They're going to have other things to do. They're going to have other businesses and whatever, you know, but they're going to retire early. That's the only thing he was wrong about. (laughs) 
Well, we could go on and on about parents and other subjects, but it's time to move on to some of our guests' favorite Serena moments. And in case you were wondering how the three of us felt about Serena eventually taking it upon herself to be Olympia's coach, all three of us agreed that Serena should supervise, but follow Richard's lead in forming out the day-to-day -day work. Zena's nomination for Olympia's coach, Venus Williams. So we'll start all the way back when the sisters were just little kids training with Rick Macy at his Florida Tennis Academy. In an earlier episode, Rick told us a hilarious Serena story featuring curly fries and a Green Day t-shirt. But he saved this favored moment for the end of our conversation. We have this huge sand pit and all the kids would play tag. Okay, they would like 40 kids in a sand pit playing tag. So the first time we played, uh, Serena's chasing someone to play tag. Are you ready for this? She would tag the person with a closed fist. <laughs> and I said, Serena, she Serena. punch him to you tag get, him. You, you, you gotta tag him. You don't, play, you don't play tag with a closed fist. And when she hears that story, she, she laughs. Andy Roddick was one of the young campers also at Macy's at the time. There, he formed a lasting friendship with the sisters, particularly Serena. And despite all their interactions over the years, he still hearkened back to those early carefree days of their youth to share this memory with us. I thought about this and this, this, my moment is one that probably gets better it's because she's become what she's become. But I remember at Rick Macy, there was this game called two on two where Rick would be like at the net post and you'd have uh, two teams uh, of two, so doubles, but you inside the service box and he would feed them low, high and it was this quick kind of reaction game. And I remember the girls came over one time and it was like, there was a certain amount of thing where, you know, they kept to themselves and they wouldn't come play with us hackers. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, like a, there's like this hype mechanism where it's like, what have you, what have you done? You haven't done anything. Uh, you know, and, and these are like some of the best juniors in the world and, you know, they don't get the attention that the girls get. So there was all that in play. And I remember this, this one guy kind of took one on the short hop and kind of flicked it over, hit Serena like, Probably third point they came over. Ooh. She didn't, she just took it. <laughs> and then like four balls later, she had a sitter. She lit his ass <laughs> up and got in his, got in his grill. And I was like, oh, smoke. Like they're tough too. They're not just like, oh my God. It was, but it was like, you know, imagine like 50 kids around this court, like everyone from the academy that day. And you know when you get like, you see it like the old N1 videos, you remember those? <laughs> where, where someone does something and everyone goes, oh! Yeah. Oh, snap! <laughs> Let's change gears now and get away from the tennis court and move up through the years to the late 2000s when Serena was dating rapper and actor Common. Common, who spoke about Serena with great warmth and admiration, shared his favorite moment, which occurred at a party celebrating his 40th birthday. Honestly, one of my favorite moments was just personal. It was like, she came to my birthday celebration, 40th birthday, and we all were having fun karaoke and picking songs. And she picked one of my songs and she knew every word to the song. It was a fast song that you wouldn't think she would be able to rap. You know, like, you know, it was one that a, a, a rapper would have, like, you had to have a lot of breath control. And, and she did every word and was performed it so good. And my friends, 
who were there were like in amazement, like, oh man, I can't believe that, that she wow. just did this. So, <laughs> I mean, I, that, that, that touched my heart that she, that she knew my song like that. Because, like, you know, Serena was, you know, sometimes she wouldn't let you know how, how much she loved you. But, <laughs> but so. This episode of The Goat, Serena, continues after this. Mary Jo Fernandez served as Serena's coach and captain numerous times at Fed Cup, now renamed the Billie Jean King Cup, and Olympic Games. But back in 1999, she was still an active player, selected by Captain Billie Jean King for the squad that would meet Italy in an away semifinal tie at Ancona on red clay. The semis were played in July, still weeks before Serena's great breakthrough at the U.S. Open. It was the debut Fed Cup event for Venus and Serena. Like most people in those early days, in and out of the tennis establishment, Mary Jo didn't know what to expect of the sisters who were taking the game by storm. Rumors flew every which way about Richard Williams and his prodigy offspring, who had avoided following the familiar path to success in tennis. What Mary Jo found was a revelation. I think the first glimpse I got to know them and, you know, get some sort of sense and, and relationship with them was when we played on the same Fed Cup team in Italy. And it was Monica, Venus, Serena, and myself. And I remember Serena specifically being a riot, like <laughs> best sense of humor, cracking jokes at the at dinner. Um and, you know, Monica and I would look at each other like, oh, wow, like she's super funny and super <laughs> friendly. And then I remember Serena coming up to me and saying, wow, Monica's so nice, <laughs> you know? So it just gave you an insight, like everybody did their own thing, you know, and Monica did her, you know, thing on the, on the tour and Venus and Serena had each other, which was nice for them, but they didn't mingle with anybody yeah. else. So all of a sudden you saw a little bit of a, you know, a softer side and a interaction, which was amazing so there i was like oh wow okay she she's funny like she she's got it going with her sarcasm and and her wittiness but i would say that one of my favorite moments was playing pictionary <laughs> <laughs> and i was on her team and i don't remember exactly the details i just remember that somehow some way she guessed whatever they were drawing without really knowing what they were drawing. <laughs> and she looked at me after, she goes, just go along with whatever I say. I like, go along with it. Okay, we gotta win, we gotta win. And I was like, you got it, we, we got this. You know, and I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how competitive she is. Mary Jo was just one of the people for whom the bond between the personal and the professional ultimately blurred, an arc that others, like Serena's trainer, Mackie Shillstone, also experienced. In an earlier episode, Mackie described how close the two had grown since 2007 when they started a strictly professional relationship. Eventually, in November of 2017, Serena and her fiancé, Alexis Ohanian, asked Mackie to officiate in New Orleans at their wedding. Mackie's favorite moment is a very simple 
intimate one. Yeah, it happened recently. Um, it actually, it was under um, Zena's tutelage. And by the way, I have to tell you, you know, I've worked with a lot of coaches. Zena's experience is known. Zena's uh, ability to um, it confer the game. But what is an intrinsic factor that no, very few people have is the, the ability to capture the attention of the athlete, mm. mm-hmm. much less the respect. But she wouldn't be there had she not had the respect. But the moment came when when we were out running and doing our stuff, and she pulls me over, and um, and she says, "You know, I, I I've never told you this, uh, but I have to tell you. You 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 treat me like your daughter. I have two sons, thirty three and thirty, and I don't. My wife and I have no daughters, two sons. But you know how to be hard on me at the right time." Wow. One of the wonderful things about Serena is that she is really open to and curious about all sorts of people who may be inside or outside the tennis orbit. She also has a lively sense of humor and appreciates a good prank as much as anyone. This was the superstar athlete who initiated the relationship with her husband when she invited him, an utter stranger at a nearby table in a Roman hotel, to join her entourage at their late breakfast. Not many people in the tennis media get to see that easygoing side of Serena or her naughty side. Players nowadays are very guarded in their interactions with media, but there are always exceptions. Serena has solid relationships with a number of people in the media, including a former pro and television analyst who was a guest on an earlier episode, Renee Stubbs. She told us her favorite Serena story. But one story that is pretty funny is, um, and this is an inside sort of thing for for anybody to know. Obviously, you guys know that I'm pretty good friends with her, and you know, from time to time, we chat and talk about um, matches and matchups and people. And you know, I'd send her a text here and there on somebody. She would ask me, like you said, Zena. You know, I've got, I'm a bit of an almanac with players. And uh, she put me in such a bind uh, at the Olympics in London and I was doing the post-match interview and I went up to her and I, you know, asked her a question and then, you know, you guys know, you have, I had an IFB in my ear to my producer in the truck and they never talk to us when we're doing the interviews. They kind of leave us be to ask our questions. And I said, asked her about this particular person and, uh, she uh, she said, well, you know, I've got this friend of mine who uh, texts me some information. And I said, I'm looking at her. And now it's gone from a two shot on two of us to one shot just on her. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, she's talking about me clearly. Right. And I said, oh, God. So I'm standing there. I'm starting to sweat because I don't want anybody to know that I've given her any information. or anything. And so I have now the microphone just on her. And of course, my all of a sudden, my producer in my ear, which never happens, calls <laughs> at me and says, "You've got to ask her who she's talking about." <laughs> I'm thinking, "Oh my god!" So of course, I'm like, "You know what? If NBC people are watching, there that would be the follow up question to ask, right?" So I go, <sighs> I look at her, I go, "Oh, who you you know? Oh, who's the secret text messages coming from?" <laughs> And I'm like, and I look at her with this eye, my eyes are the size of like 
kept like watermelons and I'm shaking I start shaking my head don't say me don't say me please and she go and she and and I put the microphone back out to her and she and she goes oh no I can't give you my secrets you know that's my for me to know blah 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 and then my producer yells in my ear is it Kobe God rest Kobe's soul because he was there that day watching Matt and I go, oh, is it Kobe? And she goes, oh, no, no. I'm just, you know, focused on my this and that. Anyway, we wrap up the interview. She starts walking off. She's cracking up. She turns around and looks at me and says, says they made you ask me who it was, didn't they? <laughs> yes. I said, don't ever put me in that situation. So Serena loves, loves messing around with me in interviews. And she and, and puts me in these situations where she knows I'm going to sweat and uh, it's like a little game that we have with each other in post-match <laughs> interviews. Uh, she's thrown me under the bus so many times and vice versa. It's almost cruel to ask a sibling to pick a favorite moment with her sister. But Isha Price, Serena's older sister, had little trouble. That's partly because the moment happened at what would become an extremely challenging time for Serena. It was September of 2017 just days before Serena would give birth via C-section to daughter Olympia. My favorite moment with Serena is when I was in the hot, we were in the hospital together. <laughs> she was about to give birth to Olympia. It was the day before Olympia was born. So this had to be August 31st. And the night before she was sucking on a, um, we were all in the hospital. And they had like, you know, it, we had privacy. And she, there was this ball, you know, that they gave her to sit on to try to, you know, get her together or whatever. The, the you know, the big balls, the, mm -hmm. I don't know what they call And the therapy so, balls. Yeah. So she's sitting on a ball. She has, you know, eating a popsicle, whatever, whatever. And we're just all t talking. And my mom's talking about birthing stories of all five of us and all this other stuff. And Serena, gets up and like we you know we were kind of singing because we like <laughs> karaoke a lot so we were all like singing and just you know tripping and Serena gets up and I was like and I was recording I was like this is what you need to remember and I was recording from my phone and she turns around and moons us because oh you know she had this, this pink hospital gown on and like, you know, and she's like doing all this stuff. She's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to bring my baby into the world and blah, 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 blah. And then she was like, duh, duh, duh. and it was just out of nowhere. So she was turning around, she was walking and then she turns around and I was like, oh my gosh, like, are you serious right now? You saw me recording. I can't even do nothing with this now. So it was, so that's probably, and then, you know, shortly after that, we got Olympia. So oh, for no. sure. One of my best. Still silly in those moments, still yeah. having fun. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Now, how many people can claim the privilege of having been mooned by Serena Williams? It's just another example of the earthy, fun loving side of Serena, the side that gets overlooked or buried in the avalanche of headlines about the goat. I think it would be appropriate to close this journey of our friend's favorite memories with another one related to Serena as a mother. Here's our friend and tennis great, Pam Shriver. My favorite Serena moment, when I think back now to her last major win in singles, when she beat Venus one more time in a major final, 
and she was overjoyed and she sort of started to fall backwards and she <laughs> fell back like more little more gently than oh, what she what normally you would. would. Yeah. <laughs> and what I think back then realizing like a month or two later, and then every time I see that replay, um, because it was on ESPN, I realized, oh my gosh, she's falling gently because she knows she's like five weeks pregnant. <laughs> and, and so she it like even then her maternal instincts, you know, great champion, one number 23, and then falls and then kind of, so that's one of my favorite. Uh, that's a favorite good memories. one, Pam. That is a really good one. Love it. Well, the fun is almost over. Doing this podcast and especially this episode, the making of the goat Serena has been a great ride. Fun, informative, interesting. We have our guests to thank for that and all the people who worked so hard to put these episodes together. In keeping with the spirit of this episode, we thought it might be appropriate to close with favorite Serena moments from the three of us tennis lifers, Zena, Pete, and me. So here we go, starting with Zena. I think the one for me actually was really recent. That I had the opportunity to spend, you know, six weeks with her and getting the little text, hey, come over and watch some film. And it might sound weird, but I mean, I'm like, but hey, she's a goat. She's already done all of this. And she's sitting down watching film with her and she literally breaks it down. I, I just that to me, you know, just of all the things that I've known, but to where she is now and she still wants to learn, I think is probably one of my one of those moments that I will always cherish. And maybe she might not get it. Maybe she might get 24, but the biggest thing is she wants to still learn. For me, it's a 2007 Australian Open, happened at the 2007 Australian Open, and it's not, it's not like a really sexy, you know, favorite moment or anything like some of them have been, but, uh, you know, she won that tournament, and she, and at these tournaments, they often did small group press conferences after the main press conference with the champion, so you get five or six journalists in a room, you know, uh, with, with a player, each of them gets one or two questions, and then that gives them a little something extra that nobody in the general press conferences has had. So we're sitting in there, and they put us in a really, really tiny room. In walks Serena. It was, it, I have such a vivid memory. She's wearing like this cream-colored dress. Nothing fancy, nothing glitzy, nothing glamorous. Like really simple, you know, uh, like almost like a country girl dress. And she, came, she sat down. She sat down right next to me. And so I'm sitting next to her, and our arms are touching. And I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm sitting here with Serena and we're rubbing elbows, literally. And, uh, you know, and it reminded me actually of uh, a time I had when I was, in, I covered some boxing back in the day and I was in Zaire for the, uh, for the Ali Foreman fight. And uh, I got to spend an afternoon with Muhammad Ali uh, at his training camp on the banks of the Zaire River and uh, through, through a contact I had. And it was so great because he was so relaxed. He was and Serena was the same way. She was, and they're very similar in a way. You know, they both have that sort of fleshy body. You don't see a lot of definition or anything. And they both have this kind of big presence and their language. You know, you, you're next to them and they're like really relaxing. Wow, I wish I could ever be that relaxed the way they are. And, uh, you know, I just won't forget that moment. She was, she was so nice. We had a lovely conversation with these four or five people and her. And, and I just uh, will always remember that. One of my favorite moments occurred at the Los Angeles WTA tournament in 2002 
after I managed to get my one win against her in the quarterfinals. One of my favorite moments was, um, you know, after playing her in the Los Angeles tournament and then she hit with me the next morning. And after that warm up, she said, now go win the tournament. <laughs> and I love that moment so much because it was so Serena. And she just said it like, matter of fact, wasn't a lot of fanfare. And I thought, yes, I should <laughs> go win the tournament. So that for me was, was one of my favorite for sure one of my favorite Serena moments and then I, there was one other after she came back from having her her daughter and uh her one of her first events was was Fed Cup and she just played doubles there it was in Asheville and I was there covering it for Tennis Channel and I did an interview with her but before we kind of sat down for the interview she had finished practicing and we were on the kind of on the sidelines just chatting and we started talking about our babies <laughs> Talking about, you know, the challenges of, you know, motherhood and, and feeding and, you know, the, the late nights and, you know, was she a good sleeper versus mine? And it was one of those really surreal conversations, especially, you know, having been on this court with each other, opposite each other, you know, so many times and singles and doubles, but to then be having a conversation off court about being a mom, I never could have imagined that as a player. Uh, but it was just one of those really cool moments when I think back on it. Well, those little ones we chatted about back then are older now, as are we. Serena, though, is still in the hunt for Grand Slam number 24, and she'll be able to resume that quest in January if she chooses to play in the Australian Open. Whatever she decides, however many Grand Slam titles she will have claimed by the time she shoves the rackets into the back of the closet, we have a funny feeling that the ride isn't entirely over for Serena Williams, not by a long shot, even though for this podcast, it is. On behalf of our entire team at Diversion Podcasts and iHeartRadio, Zena and I want to thank you for listening and thank our guests for the time and insight they gave us. We hope you enjoyed this final episode of The Goat, Serena. The Goat Serena was written by Pete Bodo. This season is hosted by Zena Garrison and Tanda Rubin. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Kalb. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Original music by Andy Marvel. Our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA and Susan Canavan. Diversion Podcasts.